0: We start with the growing pressure on government here to bring in paid sick days, including right here in British Columbia. There had been a lot of finger pointing going on in this one with the provinces looking at Justin Trudeau and the Fed saying, look, this is federal responsibility. Trudeau has not stepped up. So now you got the provinces saying, okay, we're going to go it alone here and and do this ourselves, including Premier John Horgan earlier this week saying the province will go forward with a paid sick day program. Have a listen to this here. Here's Horgan talking about it.
1: Uh, We were disappointed to see no progress. And therefore we've gone back to the shelf and taken the programs that we were working on here in British Columbia. And we're trying to get those up to speed to fill the gaps.
0: Okay, lots of questions about how this program would work. How much would you get paid? How many days could you take off? Who is going to pay for this program? Would it be paid for by the government, or would it be paid for by employers? Have a listen to this now. This is on yesterday's show. I spoke to Anna Gerard from the Worker Solidarity Network, and they want this program not to be paid by the government. They want employers to pay for this. Have a listen.
2: What we're calling for is for it to be employer-paid so that it's on the worker's next paycheck, Um, And then it's immediate, seamless, the fastest and easiest way to do that. And then people don't have to worry about whether or not they can make their rent because they had to be forced to take a sick day to look after themselves.
0: Okay, lots of questions about how this is going to work. Let's discuss now with my guest, Annie Dormuth, who is the Director of Provincial Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small business in Canada. Annie, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having us on the show. Okay, you bet. This is a super hot issue here across the country with growing pressure to bring in these paid sick days. Uh, does small business uh, have any concerns about this or thoughts on it?
3: Well, definitely since Ontario has implemented a program, and it it's important to note that, you know, I heard the clip from, from the previous, I guess, you had on your show. Um, what is happening in Ontario is that it is employed or paid, however, the money is actually reimbursed by the government. So although the employer is giving the, the, the sick day leave to the employee, it is reimbursed by the government. And that is a really important clarification and one that we actually call on government to look at just to ensure that this is not employer paid either in the form of providing funding directly to the employee or providing the funding through the employer to the employee and then reimbursing the employer, that is a really important principle that governments need to take into consideration if they are going to go down this route to provide uh, paid six days um, in their prospective province.
0: Right. How is this going to work in Ontario? I'm sure that the BC government here is looking closely at what other provinces are doing. What are they doing there in Ontario?
3: So what they're doing in Ontario is that they're actually doing it through their WCB program and they're calling it the Worker Income Protection Benefit. So Mm. there have been assurances from the Ontario government that this will not affect WCB premiums for employers. And basically what it is, the program is retroactive to April 19th and Ontario has committed that uh, basically they will top up the federal program by additional $500 per week. Um, but, what they are doing is they 're providing three paid sick days to be paid by the employer and reimbursed through ontario 's wCB up to two hundred dollars per day um, so that is what, ontario, what what Ontario is doing. And uh, again, you know, the Ontario government did do two things correctly, I think, here. Um, Again, one, is not employer paid, it is reimbursed by the government. And two, they did make a commitment that this is a temporary measure that does work alongside the federal government benefit that will come to an end on September 15th. You know, of course, uh, that may be extended, uh, depending on how the pandemic uh, goes throughout the summer months. But as of right now, it is set to expire on September 15th.
0: Right. Yeah. So a temporary measure and just three paid sick days a year. That's what they're looking at in Ontario. Of course, there are pressure groups here saying that they want a lot more than that. They want more sick days than that. And they don't want it to be temporary either. They're hoping this could be a permanent program that would continue even after the pandemic has over so let me play another clip here for you from anna gerard who was on the show yesterday and she addressed this topic about how many sick days should workers be eligible to receive have a listen here
2: what we're calling for is during a global health crisis like this pandemic for 21 days but for ongoingly um permanently we'd like to see it be seven days a year for a full-time employee um i know in ontario that they've they're calling for for three days We don't think that's that's sufficient
0: Okay. So she's saying (laughs) they're looking for a lot more than three days. So they're saying 21 paid days off while the pandemic is still going on. And then after it's over, seven paid sick days a year permanent, even when the whole thing is over. What do you think of that?
3: Well, I really think that we need to deal with the current pandemic and the current realities that, of course, are affecting employers and employees right now. Um, I do, you know, get the sense from, again, governments from across the country that perhaps there might be a larger discussion once we are out of the pandemic on on basically paid sick days and you know it is important to note that there are other provinces that do it the province of pei offers one and the province of quebec offers two actually that did not come into effect or that were in prior to the pandemic but again i think it's really important that we just focus on the current pandemic as it is right now and then perhaps we just you know have that discussion when small businesses have had a chance to recover you know and maybe had a chance you know get out of the amount of debt that they have accumulated and get back to normal sales and have that larger discussion um when we are at the position to to infor- and to basically you know have the discussion to apply that additional cost to small businesses because right now you know it would be really counterintuitive for for any government that's you know propping up businesses with grant programs and, you know, the B.C. government has done a lot of great work on providing, you know, additional help to small businesses. Basically, you know, say, you know, we understand they're in survival mode. We're, we're, we're helping support them. And at the same time, you know, slap on a, a very, very high cost for them right now when only 37% of B.C. small businesses are making normal sales for this time of year.
0: Wow. Okay. Here's another angle that we discussed on yesterday's show. And that is if you go, especially with a, a very generous or wide open or open-ended plan, with 21 days a year, maybe it'd be permanent paid sick days going forward. Could it be open to abuse if people start taking a lot of paid sick days off when they're not really sick? And we talked about that yesterday with Anna Gerard on the show. Let me play this here for you, Annie, and here's what she had to say about that, because I asked her, what about abuse of a program like this? Here's what she said.
2: Like we've seen with people that are protected by a union, they have sick days, and we haven't seen that be abused. They take it when they need it. I mean, everyone's human. And to reserve, you know, paid sick leave for people that are in a higher income bracket, and say that's that's makes sense as a right for them, but not for others. I, I think that's classist.
0: Okay, so she says that it would not be abused. Do you have any worries that it would be?
3: Well, of course, there would always be that that concern. I mean, there's also the concern, you know, as I have, as I have heard, there's also concern with regards to you know providing the three the three paid uh, time time to get vaccination. Whether or not that will be abused. Uh, generally, you know, I think employee, employees of small businesses they they do care about their employer, their operations of the small business, and generally, you know, will not be abusing some t- these types of programs. Like I said, you know, I compare the paid se- vaccination leave to the same as voting um, in that yeah. regard, and there are little cases of that abuse. But again, we're we're speaking in hypotheticals about. You know, if and when that would ever come into BC. And, and of course, there would always be that concern. But I, I do, you know, think generally, um, you know, the, the employees of, of small businesses, they really do, much like the small business owner, are very passionate about, about the business and, and would probably be more inclined to help keep it going, um, especially right. after the, the very, very tough year, more than a year that, that the business that, you know, they're employed by has been struggling.
0: Thanks very much for coming on today. You're welcome. All right. I appreciate it a lot. That is Annie Dormuth there. She is a director of provincial affairs, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And they represent small businesses across the country. Busy week on the COVID front in B.C., including you just heard our live coverage there of the news conference confirming police roadblocks and checkpoints to enforce COVID travel restrictions coming in the province. Meanwhile, the B.C. vaccine program continuing to roll out. Lots of people looking for their COVID shot. Let's discuss now with my guest, Adrian Dix. He's B.C.'s Minister of Health. And I'm very pleased you could join us once again. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on today.
4: Great to be on the show, Mike.
0: Okay, Minister, we just had live coverage of uh, the news conference by your colleague Mike Farnworth announcing those police roadblocks and checkpoints coming to British Columbia to enforce the travel orders. There are some interesting numbers that have come out with the, in the uh, the news release this morning as well, showing that B.C. ferries travel is down, hotel reservations way down. Do you think people are getting the message here, and are these roadblocks actually necessary at this point?
4: Uh, I think they're getting the message, and I think the the... Necessary. I think it's what people are looking for, which is not only to get clear uh, a clear definition of what they can do and what they can't do, and you see that on the B.C. government website, what's non-essential travel, what's essential travel, one, and two, uh, an effort to both educate and to, and to give some teeth. To um, to these travel restrictions, you're seeing it. Uh, people respond to that. Uh, in the we saw the cancellation, five thousand cancellations in BC Parks of reservations, and uh, and the the yeah. uh, I think our resort operators who have been worked very hard with us, and our hotel industry worked very hard with us, have talked to the declines in out of region visitors. So I think it is working, and it's important right now. Remember, we have. Um, We've seen the rate of positive cases decline in the last couple of weeks. This is largely due to the previous round of measures, the ones that were announced March 29th, and the actions of British Columbians. And we're hoping this will continue that effect as we vaccinate more and more people.
0: Let's talk about the issue that's really in your wheelhouse, and that's the vaccine program in the province. And we we saw some problems this week with those pop-up vaccine clinics that took place in the Fraser Health Authority. Uh, what went wrong there, and do you think, with, are, are the health authorities ab- abandoning that idea now? Will there, will there be any more of these pop-up clinics, or or is that off the table now?
4: Uh, I think some mistakes were made. It should be said that in areas of high transmission, a lot of people were vaccinated, so that's a good thing. But, but clearly mistakes were made. And you don't want mistakes to be made because you want the credibility of the program to be high. And I guess the one thing I would say, and I say this, uh, uh, is we've, uh, because Dr. Henry and myself and others have clearly apologized for some of the problems at those clinics, that overall the vaccination campaign has gone extraordinarily well in BC. We're using all the vaccines we have. More than 80% of people over 70 have been vaccinated. We found in every community around B.C., 188,000 people who are clinically vulnerable, people who have cancer or diabetes, people who have other conditions, people who have, are living with disabilities have been vaccinated in every community around B.C. Our long-term care, our assisted living, you have seen all the positive things here. And we're at a crucial moment, Mike, and I want everybody to hear this today. If you haven't registered, registered at our Get Vaccinated website, or by calling one eight three three eight three eight two three two three, 838 2323 get registered. Because more vaccine, we've been in a period of relative scarcity of vaccine, we're getting more vaccine next week. 276,000 doses of Pfizer and 82,000 doses of Moderna. So we're going to be going through age cohorts and inviting people to book. So now is the time. If you aren't registered, listen to me, and you can get registered at the same time right now in two minutes get registered so that as soon as you're eligible to book your appointment you can book your appointment.
0: Okay, my guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dixie. He's with us here until the bottom of the hour and he's kindly agreed to take your phone calls here so I'm going to read out the phone lines right now. Maybe we get a couple of calls on the air before we take a break and then take more calls. So here's the let's open the phone lines right now. So if you want got a question for the Health Minister, here's your opportunity 604 280 Ninety-eight, ninety-eight is the number. Six zero four two eight zero ninety-eight, ninety-eight star ninety-eight, ninety-eight toll-free on your cell. You mentioned uh, more vaccine coming into the province, which is great news. Does that mean that we can, the province could potentially ramp up the capacity to to vaccinate more people on a daily basis? Like right now, you're doing what about forty? Is just over forty thousand a day? Could that be ramped up even
4: higher? It's going to be wrapped up even higher. There are more appointments to be booked, and that's why you saw yesterday, yesterday at midnight, people 54 and uh, older were invited to book. So people born in 1967 on Sunday evening, uh, that'll be people who are age 52, and uh, next week it'll it'll uh, it'll drop down again. You know, so it's going to go uh, 56. Sorry, last night 54 on Sunday, 52 next week, and then 50 over the next. Seven days. So um, that's because we're booking more appointments because we ha- finally have more vaccine. So but this week we got 138,000 doses of Pfizer, which is one of our lowest weeks so far. But next week that's going to be 276,000 doses. And it's going to be 276,000 doses for four weeks. That's 1.1 million doses of Pfizer vaccine. In addition to that, there will be some moderna. In addition to that, our first doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So this is the time to get registered. Right. Uh, and uh, register, 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 and we're going to be ha- seeing everybody, everybody in .BC. able to get their do- first dose of vaccine before the end of June, who are, of course, eligible. 18 and above what can you
0: say to the frontline workers here who were promised some priority access to vaccine i'm talking like first responders grocery store workers teachers school support staff child care providers and i know that part of the program is to is to take a percentage of the vaccine you got and, and dedicate that to to frontline to frontline workers can they expect now to be vaccinated more quickly with more vaccine coming in
4: absolutely Uh, you'll know that in March we laid out a plan for that using the AstraZeneca vaccine. That a safety signal was put on the AstraZeneca vaccine so we couldn't do that in the way that we wanted. There has been a vaccination of of, uh, frontline workers over the last couple of weeks, particularly in hotspots such as Surrey. So uh, first responders, education workers, everyone has been vaccinated in Surrey, which has been a real, obviously, really a, a top priority for us, the city of Surrey. Um, and you're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. So if you think under Dr. Henry's um, direction, 15% of the vaccine coming in will be directed to frontline workers. And that uh, will be approximately 50,000 doses a week over the next three weeks because we're getting about 300,000 doses. And um, and, that, uh, and that, so we're going to see education workers and frontline workers and first responders and other workers, such as people working in grocery, getting vaccinated um, in that part of the program over the next few weeks.
0: What can you say to people? I've had a number of listeners contact me, Minister, who have had problems getting the vaccine. They have registered on the government's website, but then they have not been called uh, to receive their shot. And maybe there was some misinformation, a wrong phone number was entered on the website. But what can you tell those listeners, and I'm thinking specifically of a lady named Susan, who listens, who I'm, I'm sure is listening right now, who's been having a lot of trouble getting her shot. Can she phone someone to find out why she hasn't been called yet and scheduled?
4: Well, in her case, um, if you, you'll get me the number off air, we'll, we'll call okay. her and check in with her. Okay, so for Let- Susan. But in general, I would say this, that uh, it's possible we have a pretty effective uh, vaccine booking system. 2 million people have registered and we need more people to register. So if you haven't registered, register. If there's a, some problem with your registration, let me give you an example. Right now, uh, everyone uh, um, uh, 56 and above is able to book. Right. So if you're 56 yeah. and above and you've registered, you should have your invitation to book by now. And if you haven't, I'd encourage people uh, perhaps to register again, because if you register twice, we'll just deal with that in the system. But um, people in those circumstances should be able to book their appointment. And the main age-based campaign, remember, is Pfizer and Moderna. And right. so you'll get one of those two vaccines in that age-based campaign. And okay. what I'm saying to people is we're moving quickly down the age groups. Register.
0: Let's take a quick call. And then right now, Laura on the line in Langley. Hi, Laura. Go ahead to Adrian Dix.
2: Hi. Thank you so much. Um, my question is, how is someone supposed to get the vaccine who has no photo ID? Um my father in law is in his mid 60s. He's a frontline worker in a warehouse. Um, he's a landed immigrant, but he lost his ID years ago. He's done everything he can to get it back, but he's told he, to hope he doesn't get turned away, basically. So, how does he get a vaccine he's No, he doesn't Minister, even have a
0: bank account No, Minister, no photo ID, Minister.
4: Every, everyone in BC can get this vaccine if you live here. So, this is not a question of having a provincial health number. Of course, it helps to have a provincial health number. You can use that when you book online. If you don't have ID, phone us, phone the number and book and book your appointment that way if you're eligible, right? So if you're in the eligible category for age reasons or other reasons, uh, and you'll be in the eligible category before the end of June, phone us, phone us uh, at our at our phone line and book What's your the number? appointment that way. And uh, and uh, if you can, if you do that, and that's that's true of everyone, because we have a, a number of people who are having trouble uh, who are having trouble with the online system because they just do. For some of the it, people, it's natural. For people like me, it's more difficult. So it's one 838 2323 838 2323
0: My guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Let's continue your calls to him. Marion in White Rock. Hi, Marion. Go ahead.
3: Oh, hello, Minister Dix. Um, my husband and I, 66 and 64,
2: we were both vaccinated. It went very well, thank you. But uh, we have trouble visiting our
5: son. He is in a group home in Ladner. He's got uh, moderate to severe autism. They will. He's also been vaccinated about a, a month ago, but they will not let us um, take him for a drive, take him to a restaurant. Uh, like We wanted to take him to a patio there. But we have to uh, basically visit, see him outside in a park with masks on. And we're wondering... Why that is, if we're if we're all
4: vaccinated? Uh, the the really the rules have not changed whether you're vaccinated or not for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the uh, it, it takes some period in general for the vaccine to take full effect. So you get vaccinated today; it really takes 21 days to build up your immunity during that period from the vaccine. So it's important. To, that everyone continue to follow public health rules and public health guidance. I think, with respect to visiting and so on, as you know, uh, in long-term care and other uh, in other um, similar facilities, those rules have been uh, the restrictions have been reduced, but they haven't been eliminated entirely. And again, I think in this case, because they're really specific circumstances involving your son. Uh, i i will follow up with you personally and mike if you can get the uh, information off air because i think that's a, yes. that's a really good thing to follow up personally with the circumstances so we know exactly what they are and exactly what we can do for your for uh, uh for marion
0: okay marion please stay on the line and talk to the producer and pass on your information to the producer okay and i'll make sure the minister gets in touch with you donovan on the line in vancouver hi donovan
6: Hi, Mike. Thank you for thank you for taking my call, uh, Minister Dix. Um, So I am I'm completely blind, have been since birth, uh, and thankfully still been able to work from home throughout the case the course of the pandemic. Now, um, I know you've talked about prioritizing other people with uh, different disabilities, but from my understanding, uh, British Columbians who are blind or visually impaired aren't uh, put in that same group. Now, along with the, um, uh, some doctors from the BC, uh, um, eye physicians and surgeons, we actually sent a letter to your office and to Dr. Henry, um, about a week ago Friday, um, say, suggesting that, uh, people who are blind or visually impaired should get a, a vaccine prioritization. And basically the response was that we weren't considered, uh, as vulnerable as certain other workers. And uh, so I just wanted you to perhaps speak to that because you know being being blind, and I'm in a very lucky position that I'm at home. I, you know, can afford Ubers and such. But but people who are, are are blind really can't social distance. We don't know how to stand six feet apart, and we don't know if those around us are are wearing
4: masks. Okay, Minister. So Jonathan, I can I can speak to the process because these are these decisions have been science based decisions. We had a group at the Provincial Health Services Authority of. Doctors and specialists, but also ethicists as well, involved in priorizing people who are clinically extremely vulnerable. And initially, that was 150,000 people, and it's been expanded since then to about 266,000 people. So, those decisions and that advice are always medical advice. But I appreciate Jonathan's circumstances. I know that um, I, physicians, the eye physicians sent us a letter, and I've heard from people who are visually impaired, who have challenges. So that's something that we continue to review. For example, there are other jurisdictions that have taken different actions with respect to women who are pregnant in terms of their priority um, to the COVID-19 vaccine. And so we're constantly looking at these questions. They're constantly being reviewed by our medical teams with respect to prioritization. Of course, I encourage Jonathan uh, and uh, everyone else to get registered because your age is going to be coming in the next uh, probably six to eight weeks regardless. But um, okay. that's something we continue to look at. It gets, But it gets reviewed, and it's strictly a, a medical process, and I think the teams have done a pretty good job doing it. But, okay. you know, there's always, there's always other groups who, who need it, and I really hear what Jonathan's saying about his concerns as well.
0: Minister, we have many more calls, but sadly we're out of time, so we'll just have to have you back, and I hope we can do that again soon.
4: Absolutely. Sounds good. Take
0: care, Mike. Thank you very much. Adrian Dix there, the health minister. We have followed very closely here the battle over police officers assigned to Metro Vancouver schools. Many school districts have police school liaison programs. It places specially trained police officers in schools to provide school safety and also to mentor kids, to help troubled kids who may be getting into gangs or drugs or domestic violence or abuse. They also volunteer on sports teams and clubs in schools. I've learned a lot about these programs here the last few weeks covering this story for you. I've come to become a a big supporter of these programs, but not everyone agrees. There has been a, a very coordinated effort to kick cops out of schools as they say and cancel some of these programs and we're seeing that happen first it was the vancouver school board voting to eliminate the school liaison program which had been in place since the early 70s in fact they were about to celebrate their 50th anniversary next year in vancouver schools that will not happen the program has been shut down And police officers will be leaving Vancouver schools at the end of June. There are 15 specially trained police officers that visited schools in Vancouver. Now, same thing in New Westminster. The New Westminster School Board also voting to end the school liaison program in that School District. Now, not everyone agrees with these moves, including my next guest that I'd like to introduce you to now. Mary Lalji is a school trustee in New Westminster. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Mary. Hi, thanks so much, Mike. Really appreciate you having me on the show you bet thank you for doing this also on the line is kathy peters kathy is an an anti-human trafficking advocate she's a former teacher herself and she has done a lot of outreach on that issue in schools and i'm very pleased to welcome her too hi kathy
3: thanks mike
0: thanks to both of you mary Lougie let me go to you first mary now you're a school trustee in new west you disagree with this decision by the board correct
5: yes that is correct uh, i yeah, did you tell me why? I voted against this recommendation last tuesday night
0: yeah why did you vote that way
5: Um, because I believe there's so many benefits to our police officers uh, in our school systems. Um, they just do so much for our kids. Um, how much time do we have? Is the real question because I can start <laughs> listing all the good things that are implemented into our district because of this program over probably over 30 years now that this wow. program has been in New Westminster.
0: Well, what would if you hit the highlights? What would you say are like the, the you know the oh, top the top? Uh, benefits? Cooking
5: with cops, police versus senior uh, varsity basketball games, floor hockey tournaments in our middle schools, lectures for our law classes, uh, digital footprint presentations dangers on how to protect yourself, end gang life presentations, the dry grad, lectures for career planning classes, um, Hayek football homecoming um, at Berkshire Stadium for our football games that are a close one of mine, commencements, uh, grad ceremonies, educational lectures for our P curriculum. The police summer camp is another really good one that actually that they host in the summertime. Um, wow. They build relationships with our students because students have access to them in our schools. And that, I think, is the key element. Like, I it gives our students also time to build these relationships and trust with our police on various levels throughout their educational years. And later in life, it gives them the tools to handle situations because they have the knowledge, the, the trust, the understanding, and that they're able to work with police when situations arise. And it could be something as easy as, you know, maybe they're a uh, witness to a car accident or they're in a car accident. Um, I... I want to build relationships, that is what I want for our students and my goal still is um, to fight for this program.
0: Okay, that's a lot that you just articulated there with this program. I think maybe a lot of people would not realize just how in-depth these programs can, can be in B.C. schools when, with the police. Uh, I know that you you put up a good effort to try and save this program in New Westminster, and I, I believe you tried to move a motion to at least consult with directly with students about this decision, right? What happened
7: there?
5: Well, the motion, the recommendation, basically, I based it on the student survey,
7: yeah.
5: and it was what it is, is our students um, presented their student survey, our student trustees, and the trustee, student trustee initiative was actually from my last term, which gives our students direct access to the board to voice their challenges and concerns. So our student trustee on Tuesday night was Catherine Galloway, and she voiced that students feel more comfortable going to our police liaison officers than staff, especially for certain situations, which she spoke to on Tuesday night. Um, I also looked, you know, for other students for, of our BIPOC community, uh, for example, one of them in the survey had said, I don't think it's necessary to have police officers always on site. I'm black. And even though I've never personally had a bad experience with an officer, I try to do my best to avoid the situations. Then he goes on, I think that there is there still can be a unit dedicated to the schools and train and deal with school issues, but it's not necessary to always have them present to having officers that are BIPOC, to programs should consist of a diverse group. It also is important to know a lot about the officers and who will be at our school and their training. So basically, based on the student survey, based on seventy nine percent of these students that filled in the survey and as well as the 700 students that signed a petition for the continuation of the program, uh, I put this motion to deal specifically with the unique student body and their own challenges and concerns. So I didn't assume problems that are faced elsewhere are, f- are same, are this, that they're faced same by our own students. So um, Yeah, but
0: you weren't able to get a seconder on that motion, I understand.
5: No, I was right, not. Okay. And considering that it was student-based, student-focused, and this is what our kids are asking for, yeah. Um and also looking at the fact that there are some kids that have concerns with our police department and sure. have concerns with our police liaison officers in our schools. Yeah. And I want to address that because you know Basically, if we as trustees, we can't evaluate or change or redefine or adapt within our education system, you know, to meet the needs of all our learners and their challenges and their concerns, then what exactly is the role of a trustee? Like, I, I'm... I'm, I'm kind of at
0: off. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a really good point. Speaking to Mary Lalji, she is a, a New West school trustee who supports the police liaison program in New West, but she, w- she was outnumbered by the other trustees. They've c- voted to cancel the program. It was a similar situation in Vancouver where the Vancouver Police Department offered to work directly with the board to change and modify the program, like maybe take police officers out of uniforms or maybe not have them uh, having their sidearm or a weapon on them in, the, in a school. The, the police were willing to change, but the school board was not willing to talk about that let me talk to kathy peters now kathy is a human an anti-human trafficking advocate with the program be amazing she's a former teacher herself kathy can you tell me a little bit about the program you do in schools
7: well it is i present to all everybody in bc um, i'm focused on stopping and raising awareness about child sex trafficking in british columbia and how to stop it so i do this with politicians police and the public for example every single politician has received an information package from me about this crime. And I just want to say child sex trafficking is the big problem we have right now in B.C., and there is no public awareness about it. The sex Mm. industry is aggressively targeting 10- to 12-year-old girls in urban centres, much younger for Indigenous girls. And I just want to say the school liaison officers are a deterrent. Every parent needs to be outraged that this program was removed. They prevent crime, you know, the very crime I speak to, and yeah. they protect the vulnerable.
0: Okay, so you support, so what do you think about the decision to remove police officers from, from schools in Vancouver and New West? And who knows, maybe this could spread to other communities too. What do you think of that?
7: Absolutely dangerous. And wow. so what I am doing is I'm presenting to city councils right now all over British Columbia, and the, I'm warning them. Don't remove your school liaison officers. They are your first line of defense for for protecting your youth, children, and Indigenous. And, well, I said Indigenous. You're vulnerable, and the Indigenous are severely overrepresented, I have to add, in the sex industry. So they are particularly targeted. And our schools have become gang and sex trafficking recruitment grounds. Just assume that is happening in every school. You remove those officers... That means our youth and children are vulnerable. They will not be protected, and they're going to be targeted aggressively. They already are.
0: Okay, that's very troubling uh, to hear you say that. And uh, let me go back to Mary Lalgee. She's a New West school trustee who, who tried to save this program in New West. Like One of the things that I find, I don't know, maybe kind of ironic about this, probably the wrong word, Mary, but I think that the research and the surveys that have been done in the school districts I think clearly show that most of the students wanted to keep these programs i mean the vancouver school board commissioned an independent report that showed most students wanted to keep the police program in their schools so they went against the wishes of their own student body but um was there uh, i understand there was also a survey that was done in new west with parents right and and but that was never made public can you tell me about that
5: no and unfortunately the results of the parent survey uh were not presented to the board table so i've yet to see them so my the, the premise of my motion was we need to understand where everyone is coming from and not having the results from the parent survey i think really hurt us as a as a board because we didn't have full information and it there was no full transparency on this decision
0: yeah so they did a survey of parents to what to get their views on the program is that what they did yes that's correct yeah and then, but but you don't but you don't know the results. Like nobody knows that has not been released.
5: I have not seen it. No, to my knowledge, I have not seen it at the board table.
0: Do you think that's something that the trustees or the public should have been should have been shown before they make a decision absolutely. to cancel the whole program? Yeah,
5: absolutely. Um, we serve our students, we serve our parents, um, and we may, in terms of supporting them through our staff. Um, what what does that look like? And we did not hit any of those marks on the head at all. We continue
0: talking about police liaison programs in Metro Vancouver schools. A lot of these are programs under pressure from people who want them cancelled, and we see that happening. The Vancouver School Board has voted to cancel the program there. It's been in place for nearly 50 years. And the New Westminster School Board has also voted to end their school liaison program with local police. Uh, could be could happen in other school districts as well. My guests are Mary Lalji, she's a New West School trustee who supports the program. Kathy Peters uh, works to help keep kids out of the sex trade. Does presentations in BC schools, and she is also worried about these programs being shut down. Hey Kathy, we've talked a lot about this uh, issue on the show over the last few weeks, and I want to play a clip here for you from uh, a young man named Owen Ebose, who is a high school student in Vancouver who campaigned to remove police from schools because he says students uh, students don't feel safe with police officers around in schools. I'm going to play this clip and get your take on it. Here's Owen Ebose.
6: You have these officers in the schools. They, they're walking through the halls. They have their badge, their gun on for, for no reason at all. And students can't help but feel uncomfortable, unsafe. Questions run through their mind. Did I do something wrong? Why are these officers here?
0: Okay, Owen Abose on the show last week. And Kathy, what do you think of that? Like he says, particularly like racial minority kids, black kids, indigenous kids, uh, kids of color, they feel unsafe or uncomfortable with police officers around. What do you think?
7: Well, that's really interesting. They're the ones that are really vulnerable, for example, with the sex trade. So the sex trade and the traffickers are targeting those very students that say they want the police out. So it's kind of ironic. I mean, I'm all about prevention, that's what I do. And I just Hope everybody would check out my BeAmazingCampaign.org. That's a website I just put together so everybody could learn about this issue so you can protect your families, youth, children, and the vulnerable. But again, the indigenous, the marginalized, disabled, the LGBTQ, they are the very ones the sex industry is aggressively targeting.
0: Interesting. Mary Louji is a New West school trustee. She tried to save the program in New West. Mary, do you know? Was there any effort made in New Westminster to yeah. try and work with the the local police to try and I don't know modify or change the program in order to, in order to meet the concerns that were being expressed
5: about it? So even okay before this all started in September, when um, without any due process or without due diligence, our board pulled the police liaison officer program and removed it from all of our schools. Um, our police, they were already changing and adapting. And for the last couple of years, they would wear just golf shirts and golf pants, um, open-door policy. Um, they would engage at a level with the students, very casual level with the students. So it's not in a formal you know, classroom setting. So they were already on that track to meet the needs um, of our kids. But we yeah. do need to do more work. I'm not denying that. I don't want to take away from any other student, students in the different uh, communities, our BIPOC community. We need to address them. And this has right. to happen in an open forum, not behind closed doors, where one board has made a, a decision to cancel the entire program. I am all about rebuilding. Uh, we need to redefine to meet the needs of our kids. That's what we must. That's what we must do. That's the bottom line.
0: Okay, we just have a minute left here. Mary, you articulated a long list of uh, what sound like wonderful-sounding programs that police were involved with in, the, in this program. Are all of those now going to be canceled, or is there any opportunity for maybe police officers to continue to volunteer in schools and maybe keep some of those programs going, or is that all off the table now?
5: I believe it's off the table, and to be perfectly honest with you, I think what we've created is a two-tiered system. So our private school system, they will have access to our police liaison program, but mm. um, they will have access, actually, to all the services that the police have and the resources, where the public school system now won't. And they'll, the, the mandate now of the school board is just to deal with... Um, Specialized situations in the school that they are called to is a 911 call, and that's okay. it. So unfortunately, we are taking away the ability for our kids to build relationships and work through those concerns and challenges that they have thank- with our police officers.
0: I want to thank both of you for coming on the show and talking about your concerns with the decisions around these programs. Thanks thanks a lot to both um, of you. Wait,
5: may, I, may I add something real quick?
0: Ten seconds. Um, we got ten seconds.
5: Okay. When I do a quick presentation to our students, I always say, just for food for thought, you are my boss. I work for you. So to all the thank trust- you, Mary. There,
0: thanks, thank Mary. You, Mike. No
5: problem. Thank thanks
0: Mayor. a lot, Mary Lalgie, New West School trustee Kathy Peters. Let's talk about one of my uh, personal heroes. Now, I was very saddened to learn about his death this week. Astronaut Michael Collins, and I continue to be in awe of the three astronauts on the Apollo Eleven missions to the moon in 1969. Michael Collins was the pilot of the command module who uh, circled around the moon while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin traveled down to the lunar surface and became the first humans to walk on the surface of the moon. We lost Neil Armstrong several years ago and now Michael Collins has passed away uh, this week. Let's have a listen to this report now from ABC News.
4: He'd been asked over the years if he felt left out. not walking on the moon too. As far as feeling left out or anything, not at all. I felt uh,
6: very much an equal partner with them.
4: Today, Michael Collins' family revealing he has died at 90 years old after a battle with cancer, saying they are celebrating his life, his sharp wit, his quiet sense of purpose, his wise perspective, gained both from looking back at Earth from the vantage of space and gazing across calm waters from the deck of his fishing boat. And tonight, Michael Collins, in his own words, on his view of Earth.
6: Beyond uh, its size and its gloss, it's a fragile little tiny thing. Beautiful, shiny, though it may be, it's very fragile.
0: All right, Michael Collins passing away this week. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Gaynor. He's an historian of space exploration. He's written several books on it. He's the past president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Chris. Doing good. How are you? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks a lot for coming on. When you think about Michael Collins and his role in the Apollo 11 moon mission, what goes through your mind after we, we lost him this week?
1: Well, he he was a very beloved figure. I've been talking to some of my friends in the uh, space community, and, you know, they're more saddened than usual uh, when, when something like this happens because he... Uh, you know, he was not only a great astronaut. He he uh, did more than most people in kind of popularizing uh, space exploration. He wrote a book in 1974 called "Carrying the Fire," which most people agree is the best astronaut memoir ever written. It's a uh, it's it's really uh, a great book, and he was the. Uh, uh, person in charge of the national air and space museum in washington dc when it was built and if if you want to see space stuff that's the place to go like the columbia spacecraft that he piloted in apollo 11 that's there the wright brothers plane is there Lindbergh's plane is there uh there's uh neil armstrong space suit you name it uh if it if it didn't get burned up in space it's probably in that museum in Washington.
0: Okay, that's amazing. And some people have called him kind of the the forgotten astronaut on the Apollo 11 mission. I certainly don't think of him that way, but I guess some people would say, well, Neil Armstrong was the most famous, the first human to set foot on the on the surface of the moon and then Buzz Aldrin a few minutes later following him down the ladder and walking on the surface of the moon. Everybody remembers that michael collins was the astronaut in the command module continuing to orbit around the surface of the moon but man he played a, a crucial role here because can you talk a little bit about his role in the in the mission and why it was so important
1: well um in order for the mission to succeed you you had to have somebody running the mothership that uh, didn't go down to the surface and right. that was his job so uh he uh he faced his own perils, including the possibility of having to go home alone yeah. and leaving the other two behind if there had been a mishap when they landed uh, or, or returned from from the moon. Also, he, uh, he became the most isolated human in history. Uh, just think of it. Uh, they're a quarter of a million miles away from the from everybody else. These three people, and then two of them go down to the surface. And he, when he goes to the other side of the moon, he's thousands uh, of miles away from the nearest human being. You know, yes. I mean, even when you're on your own in the middle of the ocean, here, there's always somebody who's not that far away. Yes. Uh, so, uh, um, and people would ask him about it, and and he, you know, he said, "Well, that's that's just what I had to do." So, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's what he did. He did the. He certainly did his job, and uh, that was cru- the crucial docking maneuvers there in order for all three astronauts to return safely uh, to Earth was absolutely crucial. He's a crucial part uh, of the mission, and he participated in an earlier mission called the Gemini mission, right? That I think was a sort of a crucial precursor to the Apollo moon landing, right? Can you talk briefly about that?
1: That's right, uh, Gemini was in 1965 1966 and they had 10 different missions with uh with two astronauts on board each one and that's kind of where everybody learned the skills they needed for Apollo like docking in space and right. walking in space and he was the pilot on Gemini 10 and if 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 you, I think that was my favorite Gemini mission because they uh they uh, uh docked with an Agena rocket, and, and it was a flying fuel tank, and it took them up to a really high altitude. They fired that engine. He did a couple of spacewalks. Unfortunately, they, uh, they lost the camera, so we don't have any pictures of those spacewalks. Uh, but it was just a, a fabulous, action-packed mission and uh, uh, really helped pave the way for Apollo.
0: Right, we just got about a minute left here, Chris. Uh, these are the giants of the space program, as per- certainly the Apollo missions, and it's kind of sad to lose them. I remember speaking to you several years ago when Neil Armstrong passed away, and now now we've lost Michael Collins here. I think you mentioned to me in an email that John Glenn would have turned 100 years old in July uh, if, he had, if he was still around. Uh, we're losing a lot of these original great astronauts. What are your thoughts on that in the minute we got left here?
1: Well, uh it, it was a, an amazing uh generation and yes yeah. they're uh they're they're disappearing a lot of the moonwalkers and all. this, the the original mercury guys are all gone now. And like like I said, uh you know, uh, uh some of them would would have been 100 if they're around and uh yeah. you know, but uh we have new generations coming up hopefully uh, people will be walking on the moon within uh, within a few years, yeah. uh, which I think is a positive thing. Uh, this is something that Trump set up, and and Biden is carrying on with this, uh, which is kind of uncharacteristic. Uh, but uh, hopefully, we'll see uh, uh, men and women walking on the yes. moon within a few years.
0: Yeah, that's exciting to think about, Chris. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for coming on today to remember Michael Collins.
1: My pleasure.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. That is Chris Gaynor there. He's an historian of space exploration. He's written many, many books on space exploration, including Canada's role. He's the past president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, remembering Michael Collins, who passed away this week. He was a member of the Apollo 11 moon mission, the first lunar landing, and he passed away this week at the age of 90.